0: Let's bow together in word of prayer, asking the Lord's assistance on our time in his word. Our God, indeed, we come before you and confess you as the holy God, thrice holy. We thank you that even though we do not deserve to approach you because of our sinfulness, that you have done everything necessary to qualify us, to save us, that we might be called your saints, that we might be called your holy ones. And Father, we stand back in amazement. We are in awe that you would devise and execute such a plan. And now as we approach your word and we see how that plan played out through the life of your son, Jesus Christ, as he walked upon this earth, I pray that you give us eyes to see, give us a mind to understand, and give us a heart to submit to our Lord and Savior. It's in his name we pray. Amen. I'd like to begin with somewhat of a uh, thought experiment about what you would do if Jesus Christ were to walk into the room right at this instant. What would your response be? There was a group of great literary men that met in England in the prior century and they were sitting around thinking through this scenario. What would we do if great thinkers of the past came and stood in our walked in the door right in this instant? What would our response be? They went through a number of of men, and one of them suggested that if William Shakespeare walked into the room, that they would all stand in respect for such a great man and wonder at how he could write so much amazing literature. But then another chimed in and suggested that if Jesus Christ were to walk in, that they would all fall at their feet and fall at his feet in humble adoration for who he was and indeed this should be the response of all those who see Jesus and know Jesus for who he is when they come to face come to face to face with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords there should be a response of humble adoration we read in Revelation chapter 1 that when the Apostle John saw the resurrected Jesus Christ did he go up and hug him no he fell down at his at his feet as a dead man Revelation 1, verse 17. And yet this isn't the response of everyone. In our text today, Jesus is going to present himself before the nation of Israel. And the reaction is going to be mixed. Some will love him. Others will hate him. Some will accept him. Others will reject him. And isn't that the same today? That when Jesus is presented as seen in his the holy word of God that some see Christ and love him. And yet others, their hearts are hardened against him and they reject him. They're opposed to him. And so today we're gonna see in the book of Luke how Jesus is presented to his people, the nation of Israel, when he enters Jerusalem. But the question that will be for us today is how will we respond to Jesus Christ? Israel made their choice there in the first century. The question is, What is our choice today? We can't simply just admire him. We can't simply just respect him. We must fully embrace him. We must believe in him. We must submit to him as Lord. Because it is only in full submission and in full trust and belief that we are saved. That we have eternal life secured for us. And so I invite you to open your copy of God's Word, if you're not there already, to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 19. We'll be looking at verses 28 through 44. And we will spend both this week and next looking at this text. Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 28. For some time we've been tracking Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. If you've been with us, we know that you know that he has been on a journey to Jerusalem. In Luke chapter 9 verse 51, he began this fateful journey to the end of his life, and he says he set his face to go to Jerusalem. I preached the message on Luke 9:51 back on August 8, 2021. So it has been ten chapters through the Gospel of Luke. It has been over a year and a half of tracking Jesus' travels from the time that he was determined to go there that we have been looking at this travel, this this journey to Jerusalem. And our text today describes that approach and what happens when he enters that city. Let's, Let's follow along as I read beginning in verse 28. It says, And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? you shall say this The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent, went away and found it just as he had told them and as they were untying the colt its owner said to them why are you untying the colt and they said the lord has need of it and they brought it to jesus and throwing their col- cloaks on the colt they set jesus on it and as he rode along they spread their cloaks on the road as he was drawing near already On the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it As you can tell, this passage describes what is traditionally known as the triumphal entry of Jesus. It's what is often celebrated on Palm Sunday. It's triumphal because he is hailed as the King of Israel as he arrives in the city for his final visit. But I believe that most Christians don't realize the full significance of this event. And so I want to help us to see the full portrait of Jesus that is painted for us in this text And in particular, I want to show you three attributes of Jesus revealed in this passage that would help you to embrace Jesus as your Lord and King. Three attributes that we're going to see of Jesus Christ that would help us to embrace Jesus as Lord and King. This morning, we just have time to look at the first attribute. We'll look at the other two next week. And so what I want us to first see here in this text is... Jesus' sovereignty in his preparation. Let's first see his sovereignty in his preparation. And we'll see this in verses 28 through 35. Verses 28 through 35. Now verse 28 says, And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. Now the last that we saw Jesus, he was in the city of Jericho. A city that is below sea level in the Jordan Rift Valley. And he then has to climb over 3,000 feet to get from Jericho, that's below sea level, and Jerusalem, that's above sea level, and over the course of some 15 miles or so. And so he and his disciples and all the other pilgrims that are traveling to Jerusalem for the feast of Passover have to make that grueling hike from Jericho to Jerusalem, climbing over 3,500 feet. Verse 28 tells us. That Jesus is not dragging his feet on that hike. He knows what awaits him. He knows what is coming. And yet, he is not slowing down. He is going on ahead. He's not crippled by fear, but marches boldly towards the city that will kill him. And he knows, take no... Uh, doubt about it. He knows he will perish in Jerusalem. We saw this just in a chapter earlier in the passage we looked at on Easter Sunday in Luke chapter 18 verses 31 and 33 where he says, see we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon and after flogging him they will kill him and on the third day he will rise. So Jesus knew what was going to await him in Jerusalem, and yet he's not lagging behind. Verse 28 says he went on ahead. Mark chapter 10 verse 32 says he was walking in front of them. Jesus here is the the consummate leader, the bold leader who's going out ahead, who is leading his people, going to sacrifice on their behalf. Friends, it's here that we see that Jesus is in control of this situation. We see his sovereignty even in this. In one sense, was Jesus a victim? Was was shameful and harmful things done to him? Yes. He was put to death by the wicked schemes of the religious leaders. And yet, Jesus never once lost control of the situation. He was in control the whole time. He was wise as a serpent, but innocent as a dove. And each move that he made was calculated. And so he went boldly, taking a step at a time, going to Jerusalem. Now verse 29 tells us some of the location to where Jesus was headed here. He didn't march directly into the city. It says he was going up to Jerusalem, verse 28. But verse 29, look at it. It says, when he drew near to Bethphage and... Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet he sent two of his disciples. Here we get the names of two villages. Bethphage and Bethany. Bethphage means house of unripe figs. Bethany means house of depression or misery. These two communities were east of Jerusalem and were just up over the crest of the Mount of Olives. In fact I got one picture here. This is a a picture of Bethany drawn in about the 1870s. So, uh, not ancient history, but definitely a little more ancient than, uh, than today. But, and what you can see in the, in the background is, is this, way, th- this view is on the Mount of Olives looking down at Bethany and then be sloping downward towards Jericho, the Jordan Rift Valley, and then the, the mountains uh, of Jordan that rise there in the background on the other side of the Jordan River. Now to understand the geography of Jerusalem, and we'll mention this a few times as we go through the Passion Week in the book of Luke, but we've got to understand a little bit of the geography. The Mount of Olives was, in one sense, a a peak, but in more senses, more like a, a small range of hills that were to the east of Jerusalem. And in between the uh, Mount of Olives is kind of range of hills and Jerusalem City the proper proper with the walls was the Valley Kidron Now there's a uh, I got another picture that Shows again drawn the same time period. This is kind of from the south looking north uh, Northeast and behind the the tree that's on the left of the picture uh, you probably can't see it from your distance, but there's a little bit of the outcropping of the wall of Jerusalem that's right there. So that's the wall of the city there on the left. But off beyond it, after the valley of the Kidron Valley, rises the Mount of Olives with a few uh, slight rises or peaks that sit upon that range that is to the east of Jerusalem. Bethany and Bethphage were just up over that, that hillside that you see there. It was on the, the east side of the Mount of Olives. And so therefore, when people were coming up from Jericho to Jerusalem, they came to these two little communities before they then crested the Mount of Olives and went down the Kidron Valley and then up into the city of Jerusalem. They had to pass by Bethphage and Bethany first. And so I have uh, one more picture here. That uh, shows you a modern aerial view and the red stripe kind of shows you the range of the Mount of Olives of those peaks that you saw previously. Uh, the white circle is the Temple Mount which today has the Dome of the Rock on it. Uh, but the, the, the basic footprint is as it was in Jesus' day. And, uh, and then you can see on this eastern side of the Mount of Olives, uh, Bethany which is the furthest east. And then Bethphage which is kind of right there near the, the summit, right near the crest of the Mount of Olives. And so, as Jesus and the pilgrims are traveling, they would have been coming from the right of the picture, coming up from Jericho, coming up into these villages before they crest down and go into Jerusalem. Now, when we stitch together the narratives of the Gospels, you can remember, we've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they're all telling the story of Jesus' life from different perspectives. And when we seek to harmonize these and put these together, we find that Jesus arrives in Bethany on Friday on Friday. This is probably just before the Passover because remember when you celebrate the Passover, you cannot travel uh, more than a Passover or sorry, celebrating the Sabbath is what I meant to say. Uh, They're there to celebrate, uh, need to celebrate the Sabbath there uh, in Bethany because you can't uh, travel long distances on the Sabbath. That was against Jewish law. And so it seems best. Jesus was coming up from Jericho. He's With all these pilgrims, they're they're, they're all headed to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Jesus veers off and spends uh, the night in Bethany, most likely with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, his friends that are there in Bethany. And the rest of the pilgrims then go up over and into Jerusalem before Friday night because the Sabbath begins at sundown. It's then after the Sabbath, Sunday morning, that he begins to make these preparations for his arrival in the city. And he does this by sending uh, two disciples into the village to uh, procure a donkey's colt. And I've just got one more map here for you that over on the far right of the picture is Bethany. And you can see the red line that then goes to Bethphage uh, where they go to get this, uh, this donkey, this colt. And then the rest of the journey down the Mount of Olives, which we'll look at later. Now Jesus gives these two disciples, you don't know which two it is, some very specific instructions. Let's look at verses 30 and 31. He first gives them a specific location. Look at verse 30. Go into the village in front of you. Go into the village in front of you. I think this, again, says that Jesus was staying at Bethany with the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. He sent them to Bethphage. Luke and Mark name the two villages, and so you could go, oh, it's a toss-up which one he's talking about. Matthew mentions Bethphage alone, and so I think that's the village where the the donkey was from. Just a mile or less than a mile up the road. And so he gives them a specific location. He gives them a specific object to look for. Verse 30, where on entering you will find a, a colt tide on which no one has ever sat. Now, if you read this account in Matthew 21, he mentions two animals. He mentions two animals, whereas Luke and Mark only mention one. The difference is Matthew uh, 21 verse 2 says this, And immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. And so what we see is that the colt is so young that it's still with its, its mother. And so... Matthew records the fact that the the mother uh, donkey is there and the colt is there as well. And and Mark and Luke and John only mention the one animal because it's the colt that no one has sat on that's most important. That's the one Jesus is going to sit on and that's the one that fulfills prophecy. And so they go to get this colt upon which no one has ever ridden. But there's this specific action. He says to uh, untie it and bring it here untie it and bring it here. They're to walk up there, to get it, to bring it back. But there's also, he mentions that there's going to be a specific objection to their untying this colt. He says, and if anyone asks you why are you untying it, you shall say this, the Lord has need of it. This is an understandable objection, right? Um, you can see a picture of the owners walking out. Um, excuse me? Uh, what do you think you're doing? That is not your colt. I don't know who you are. And Jesus then gives them a specific reply by which they can answer this objection. He says, you shall say this, the Lord has need of it. He commands them to give this simple reply, the Lord has need of it. Now after Jesus' instructions, simple instructions, verse 32 makes it clear that the disciples found everything as Jesus had said. They even encountered the same objection that he had prepared for. Look at verse 32, those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. In verse 35, they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. So here we have a simple example. Breakdown of events. Jesus commands the disciples, they go, they find it exactly as he had instructed, and they come back, and Jesus then sits on the colt. Now, as I said earlier, it's in these verses that we need to see Jesus' sovereignty as he makes these preparations. His sovereignty as he makes these preparations. We can look at this and go, oh, that's kind of cool. He kind of knew about these donkeys and he sent them and told them exactly what they need to to say and it kind of happened. And it's kind of a curious fact of history. But there's more here that we need to see. And I believe we can see his sovereignty in three ways here in this text. And the first is we see it in his carefully planned arrival. His carefully planned arrival. Now up to this point in the narrative, Luke has been documenting Jesus' teachings and actions leading up to his arrival in Jerusalem. We've been talking about that. And we've seen his power as he's healed people. We've seen the power of his teaching as he taught the the crowds and he taught his disciples. But there's another layer to his traveling to Jerusalem that we need to highlight. And this is going to call us to, we need to pull in from the other gospel narratives in order to do this. This is something that I've, I've typically stayed pretty tight to the narrative of Luke as we've been going through it. Uh, here I want us to pull back and kind of see the other details that we can find in the other gospel accounts as we seek to understand this event and the history that's going on here. This is real time and space history that took place here in the first century and we need to, need to see it as such. I am indebted to Bible teacher Dr. Doug Bookman for his insights into the, the Passion Week and these events that are leading up to, uh, to the, this Passion Week. And we uh, a number of years ago, we had him out for a Passion Week uh, conference that I know you all benefited from. And uh, I've greatly appreciated the way he has help, helpfully stitched together uh, these narratives. But we can, as Jesus began his ministry, he presented himself to the people of Israel, right? He was announcing who he was and people were beginning to make a decision. And as we have traced through the gospel narratives, there was growing opposition to him, particularly the religious leaders were, were not happy with what Jesus was doing. They were opposed to him. And In fact, as early as Mark chapter 3 verse 6, we see that the religious leaders decided they were going to figure out how to destroy Jesus. Murder was on their mind very early. But that desire only intensified over the three and a half years of Jesus' ministry. They didn't know how it was going to happen, but they knew that they needed to stop this man. However, they needed a local ruler who would work along with them who would be sympathetic to their desires. And so, this is where we then get into the geography of Israel, and it's helpful to know who is in charge. And i got a map here that shows the, the Israel in the first century, uh, the kingdom of Herod the Great that was then s- split up. These different areas were then given ju- jurisdiction to Herod's sons. Herod Antipas, one of Herod's, uh, Herod the Great's sons, ruled Galilee, that purple in the north, and Perea, the like uh, peach salmon color uh, there in the middle to the east of the Jordan River, to the right of the Jordan River. That was ruled by Herod Antipas. And this ruler, Herod Antipas, was more allied with Rome. He didn't care uh, so much to acquiesce to the, Jewish, the Jews' desires. He, they came to him with requests and he kind of said, listen, I'm not interested. I'm going to keep doing my thing. On the other hand, Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, which is more that gray uh, region in the lower part of the map in Jerusalem, sat in Judea. He had originally been very insensitive to the Jews, didn't care about them, but he was rebuked by the emperor and therefore emperor of Rome and therefore he became much more sympathetic here in latter years and the Pharisees knew that. And so increasingly it became dangerous for Jesus to enter Jerusalem. And its environs. And so with that turn with me to John chapter 10. We're going to use the gospel of John here to help put some understanding in the background of what's going on. John chapter 10. John more than the other gospel writers describes his visits to Jerusalem and therefore we see the showdown with the religious leaders there in the city. John chapter 10, looking in verse uh, 30 to, uh, to 33, Jesus ends his, uh, his, his statement in verse 30. He says, I and the Father are one. Verse 31, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered them, I've shown, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered, it is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy because you being a man make yourself god they understood what was at stake they understood the claims that jesus was making and therefore they picked up stones in order to stone him and they believed that they would be able to get away with it and so because of this opposition glance down to verse 39 Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. And they went away, he went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. So, here we see that because of the opposition, there is a death threat upon his life. Jesus has to get out of Jerusalem and he goes across the Jordan to that salmon-colored area that was on the map called Perea and there, ruled by Herod Antipas and he's going to be safer over there because Herod is not going to be as quick to hand over Jesus to the Pharisees and the religious leaders. So Jesus being very shrewd goes to an area he knows he's going to be more protected. His hour had not yet come. He knows it's not time for him to go to the cross yet. He is going to make every move that he needs to in order to bring that about at the right time. It's while he's there in Perea, staying away from the Pharisees, that the Pharisees send a delegation to Jesus. And we look at this earlier in the Gospel of Luke, but keep a finger in John and flip back to Luke 13 for a moment. Luke chapter 13. So again, the, the Jews want to kill him there in Jerusalem. And now they're sending a delegation out to Jesus. And what do you think they're going to say? Well, here it looks like he's help, they're helping him. Look at Luke 13, verse 31. It says at that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. How often I, would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood on her wings and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I believe here the Pharisees, are; their ploy is to try to get Jesus afraid of Herod. Remember, he went to Herod in the region of Herod to stay protected. The Pharisees come and said, hey, you may not want to stay here because Herod wants to kill you. And Jesus can see right through it because he wants them to run right back into the area where they've got greater jurisdiction and where they they could be able to string him up. And in the midst of this, Jesus makes the prophecy. He says, I tell you that you, speaking of Jerusalem, will not see me until you say... Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus says, I'm not coming back to Jerusalem until, I'm not coming back to that city officially until you say these words. And at that time, that probably seemed impossible. What, Jerusalem's going to welcome you as the Messiah and say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord? They just tried to stone you, Jesus. What do you think is going to happen? How in the world would they be able to welcome you in such a way as to be able to greet you with the words of this messianic psalm? Psalm 118. It didn't seem possible but again he's in control he's wise and strategic and he moves in order to evade arrest and yet to arrive in Jerusalem where these very words will be said of him therefore his death does not occur a moment earlier or later than Jesus has planned it to be again the gospel of John records that he says my hour has not yet come he knows when that hour will will come But before he's crucified, he wants to present himself one final time before the nation. And he'll do that in Jerusalem with the most number of people there, the biggest representation of the nation. And so in order to make that happen, he makes a number of moves in order to stay one step ahead of the hangman and to assemble as many people as possible there in Jerusalem. And the major event that makes this happen is the raising of Lazarus. And for that, let's flip back to John chapter 11. John chapter 11. In the gospel of John, he gives a great amount of time to this miracle. Jesus receives news that his friend Lazarus has died or is ill and then he waits till he's dead. And by the time he gets there, he's been in the grave four days. This was to make sure is absolutely verifiable by all around that this man was dead. In fact, there's reference to the stench. The body had already begun to decay. The whole village, everybody knew this. It was undeniable. And so Jesus plans it. Remember, he waits. He holds back before he goes so that when he goes and performs this miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead, it's going to be the biggest, most undeniable miracle and will set the whole Jewish nation aware. They're going to be talking about this. He's raised others from the dead, but this one, those were in Galilee, this one will be in the the region of Jerusalem in Bethany where Lazarus' friend resides. And it's this event that will single-handedly incite the leadership to amp up their efforts to put Jesus to death. And it will cause a stir among the nation. So let's look at verse 43 of this John 11 and see the miracle itself. It says, when... John eleven forty three. when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. There the miracle takes place. And look what then happens to the Pharisees. Verse 45, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. The Pharisees now have found out about what took place at that grave. And because of this miracle, Jesus' fate is sealed. And so look at verse 53. So from that day on they made plans to put him to death. They We're no longer talking about it. They were now making plans. This is going to become a reality. We are going to do this. We're going to put Jesus to death. Jesus is now a fugitive. He's now a marked man. A price is on his head. And so the next verse, verse 54, Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with the disciples. Ephraim is just north of Jerusalem between uh, Samaria and Judea and he hides out there. He kind of lies low for a bit. But then we, he then travels north and picks up with a group of pilgrims traveling back down for the Passover. It's now getting time for the Passover. He needs to get, he wants to get to Jerusalem and again the nation is causing a stir with this resurrection that he uh, that he had performed of Lazarus. And so Luke 17, 11 says that he's passing through the region of Galilee and Samaria. He's traveling there with the pilgrims who will then go over to the eastern side of the Jordan River and traveling down because they don't want to walk through Samaria uh, because of the ethnic tensions there. And so he travels with this group all the way down. This is the group that he's been traveling with as we've been walking from, uh, with him through the Gospel of Luke. They then cross over the Jordan River again, go into Jericho. We saw him in Jericho healing blind Bartimaeus, uh, saving Zacchaeus. And then he then leaves Jericho and, and climbs up to go to Jerusalem. John chapter 12, verse 1, if you're still there, says, Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead, and they gave him a dinner there. So six days before the Passover, I believe Jesus uh, took the Passover on Thursday. Six days before was on Friday. And again, as we said, this had to have been before the Sabbath because if it was on the Sabbath, the Saturday, sundown Friday night, they are not traveling anywhere. And so when the sun went down, the Sabbath would begin. And so the pilgrims that were traveling with Jesus had been seen as teaching, seen as miracles, and they are jazzed that Jesus is coming to the Passover. And so while Jesus pulls aside to Bethany, the rest of these pilgrims then go over the Mount of Olives, go into the city, and set the city a with Jesus is coming. They, people were asking if Jesus was going to be coming to the feast. We see this in John 11, verse 55. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves and they were looking for Jesus saying to one another as they stood in the temple what do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees given orders that if anyone knew where he was he should let them know so they might arrest him. So everyone's asking And now all of a sudden, this flood of pilgrims flows in on Friday, right before the Sabbath, and says, yes, Jesus is coming. We were just with him for weeks as we traveled. He's coming, and because he landed in Bethany, and Bethany was too far to travel on a Sabbath day, he's not coming on Saturday, he's gonna come Sunday morning. They were ready for him. They knew he would be coming. And so Jesus has been staying one step ahead of the hangman as well as creating a buzz among the nation that Jesus was coming. And here we see his sovereignty. He is in control. He's orchestrating these events to line up exactly as it needs to be, to fulfill prophecy, to accomplish his mission, and to die precisely on the day that he intended to. But there's two other lines of evidence for us to see the sovereignty of Jesus in this text. The second is his knowledge of the donkey, his knowledge of the donkey or the colt, now, the fact that he knew the location of the cult and, and, and what was said in that case is one that has always amazed people that have read the account. But the question is, how did he know about it? And I can say that good godly Christians, good scholars disagree on this point. Some attribute it to his supernatural knowledge. Others attribute it to his careful planning and talking with others ahead of time. I think it can go either way. Both uphold, uh, both will affirm the full deity of Christ, full humanity of Christ. There's not a question in terms of orthodoxy here. It's just that the text doesn't give us strong indications one way or the other. Again, some explain it in terms of his divine revelation. He's he's God, he knows things that other humans don't know, and so he just knew that there in the village ahead, there were some donkeys, and there was one that hadn't been ridden yet, and so he sends his disciples with specific instructions. And therefore, this would be an example of his omniscience, of his all-knowing, knowing all things. But another explanation is that previous to this time, Jesus had arranged this whole thing to take place. Maybe it's the last time he's in Bethany. He could have talked to the owners. Or maybe he's, he's sitting there with Lazarus on the Sabbath day and says, hey, do you know anybody around that's got a colt? And he says, yeah, yeah, I know, this, I know this guy just over in Bethphage. They just had a colt a few weeks ago. No one's ridden on it. And so Jesus asked Lazarus, hey, could you go talk with him? And he could arrange this whole thing so that come Sunday morning, it could go according to plan. I tend to lean that Jesus, towards the option that Jesus arranges ahead of time, but again, good Christian scholars can go either side. It's not one, it's not a test of orthodoxy. But I believe that the, what's the whole reason behind this? This is the question I was asking this week. Why didn't Jesus go pick up the colt himself? I mean, he could have, he was gonna pass through Beth foggy anyway on the way down the Mount of Olives. He could have just gone over and untied the colt and got on it. I think what he is showing to his disciples is that he is intentionally orchestrating these events. By arranging in this way, he made an impression on the disciples that everything is going according to Jesus' plan, his timetable, his agenda. He isn't driven by the passion of the crowds or the animosity of the religious leaders. Jesus is walking according to his plan. But there's a third and final line of evidence for us to see Jesus' sovereignty and his control. And that is, thirdly, his fulfillment of prophecy. His fulfillment of prophecy. Now Luke doesn't mention this uh, prophecy, but Matthew and John do. Matthew, in Matthew 21 verse 4, says this. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying... Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a beast of burden. Jesus knew this prophecy, and he was intentionally orchestrating events to show that he was the one of which this prophecy spoke. He was Israel's rightful king. And therefore, he was not simply going according to his own plan, but the divine plan of all things. Jesus was doing things according to plan. He was in control. He was sovereign. Friends, these preparations that Jesus was making for his entry into Jerusalem shows that they didn't happen by happenstance. It wasn't just accidental coincidence. Jesus was seeking to bring these things about according to his own will and his own work. And the truth is, That as we see his sovereignty, as he pulls together this entry into Jerusalem, we're reminded that Jesus is sovereign today as well. Jesus is in control. He is Lord. Hebrews 1 says he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Colossians 1 says in him all things hold together. He is seated at the right hand of the throne of God far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Jesus is sovereign. And the question is, will you bow in humble adoration to him? The modern view of Jesus in the evangelical church has lowered Jesus to the level of a nice guy with a big heart. He is viewed more as a comforting therapist than as a commanding Lord and King. The reality is is that he is Lord and he's commanding all people everywhere to repent of the rebellion and to trust in him. Why is this? Because he's a loving and gracious Lord. Because he's the Lord that has mercy for sinners. He's a Lord who first gave his life for sinners. Remember Jesus is doing all of this to then go to the cross in Jerusalem to be crucified for sinners like you and me. Out of his love and his mercy he paid the penalty that you and I deserved. So the question is, are you trusting in the sovereign Jesus this morning? Are you resting in him? Do you have your confidence in him? Friends, there is no greater savior to be found but in Jesus Christ. And so I pray that you are resting in him, that you see him in all of his sovereignty and all of his glory, and that you bow the knee in humble adoration in your own heart this morning. Let's bow together in prayer. Oh God, we thank you for this word that as Jesus prepared to go into Jerusalem and present himself as the king of Israel, that he was in control, that he was the sovereign one who was orchestrating all these events. Father, we're humbled to see that Jesus was deliberate that Jesus was determined to go to the cross, to go to the cross for sinners like us. And I pray, Father, that if there are any here this morning who have not submitted their life to Christ, that have not seen him in all of his grandeur and glory, nor have trusted him because of his love, that you would please open their eyes this morning, that we all, might bow in humble adoration. It's in his name we pray, amen.